Good morning. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 20 this morning. So turn to the book of Matthew chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words up on the screen, or there are Bibles in stacks around the room. Feel free to grab one of those if you can. Matthew chapter 20. And we will be concluding this chapter this morning. We'll be looking at verses 29 through 34. So let me read these verses out loud to us now. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Amen. What a beautiful passage in God's word. One of my favorite moments in The Lord of the Rings. I know, I know, just... One of my favorite moments is a scene that they left out of the movies. It's uh, from a chapter in the final book called The Houses of Healing. It happens right after one of the heroes in the story, Aragorn, has just led out in a stunning victory over the armies of Mordor. And after the battle, he makes his way into the now liberated capital city of Minas Tirith. And at this point in the story, we as readers know that Aragorn, the son of Arathorn, is the heir of Isildur. <laughs> that means he's the king, the king of the kingdom of Gondor. He is the hope of all of Middle-earth. We know that he is the true king, but the people in the city, they don't know that yet. They've heard rumors, but, but they're still not quite sure what is going on. And really, at this point, all of the people in the city are just... Well, they're just weary from all of the fighting that has been happening. And so here comes Aragorn into the capital city, the rightful ruler. But he doesn't make his way to the throne room to secure his reign. He doesn't make his way into the the great hall where he can eat a feast in celebration of his victory. He doesn't even go into his own chambers to rest after fighting a long, difficult battle. But the very first place that the rightful king goes is to the houses of healing, to the hospital, to be with the warriors who are wounded and are dying. And it's an amazing scene. He uses his knowledge of remedies and medicine to one by one begin to heal those people in their hospital beds who are about to die. And it's in this incredible moment that an old woman, the the warden of the Houses of Healing, she remembers a prophecy spoken in the old lore. And she says it out loud. She says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. 
And Tolkien writes, soon the word had gone out from the houses of healing that the king was indeed come among them. And after the war, he brought healing and the news ran throughout the city. Isn't that amazing? I don't know why they left it out of the movies. And of course, we know that Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, is a sincere Christian, and those stories were influenced by his worldview. And in particular, his character Aragorn captures this vision of power and kingship and true greatness that Jesus has been teaching his disciples over the last several verses. If you were with us last week, you remember that we saw the disciples grappling with each other in this really gross way about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom that Jesus was going to set up. Who, who is going to be the one on top? Who's going to sit on the thrones next to Jesus' right hand and his left hand? And we remember what Jesus said to them in verse 25. Just look up to verse 25. He says to the disciples, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the nations, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, Christians. No, whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, those are the verses that come right before our passage this morning. And, and so we can see this short story at the end of Matthew chapter 20 is really something of a conclusion to what Jesus was just teaching his disciples. It's, a, it's an enacted illustration. It's Jesus demonstrating just what he was talking about. But this passage is neat, and Matthew does this a lot in his book, because as it serves as the conclusion to what came before it, it also serves as the introduction to what comes after it. Next week, we are going to see Jesus finally arriving in the capital city of the Jews. And he's going to be hailed as a king. Word has gone ahead that the king has come into his city but what is it that sets up this triumphal entry? What is it that gets everyone excited about the king finally arriving? At least as Matthew tells the story, it's this story of Jesus healing two blind men. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. We've got three points in our outline. We'll look at verse 29 first. And this, this verse just gives us the setting of the story. So we'll call this point a significant journey. Look again at verse 29. It says, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So remember for the last two chapters now, Jesus has been making his way with his disciples from Galilee in the north over to the region that's east of the Jordan River. And they are coming down and now they are going up to Jerusalem. And we can't miss the significance of this journey as Jesus has been making his way for these last two chapters. This, the significance of Jerusalem. Because this is the religious and the political capital of Judea. This is where the Jewish temple was located. This is where the Roman governor and the provincial leader, Herod, King Herod, this is where they had their palaces. So this is exactly the place where the rightful king would be coming in to seize power. 
But not only that, Jerusalem is also the place where Jesus has predicted three times now that he would be handed over to the governing authorities and be crucified, die, and then afterwards be raised. So Jesus knows that going to Jerusalem means going to his death. He knows that, that this is what is waiting for him. But he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't turn away from it. In fact, he is set on it. He is determined to go to Jerusalem because it is only in his death, in giving his life, that he can become the ransom that he was just talking about. The ransom to save many. That's how he can become the king who serves his people to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now by the time we come to the end of Matthew 20, Jesus is not quite there yet. He's still on his way, but he has crossed back over the Jordan River. And he's come to Jericho, which is just a few miles from Jerusalem. He's getting close. And that might be all that Matthew is intending with this detail that he says he's gone through Jericho, that he's just trying to say Jesus is getting closer and closer. But I don't wonder if Matthew and his Matthean way of bringing up Old Testament allusions all the time isn't also thinking of something else significant when he tells us that Jesus has just passed through Jericho. We hear Jericho, and what do we think about? Joshua, right, kids? And the walls came tumbling down. Turns out our elementary age kids and DSC kids, they're studying the story of Joshua and Jericho this morning. We did not plan that. But yeah, this is the place where 13 centuries before, another leader in Israel, Joshua, had led the people over the Jordan River into the promised land that God had given to their ancestors. And at the time, it was still inhabited by their enemies. And and yet it was God who worked miraculously to bring them over the river and then to cause the walls of this fortified city to collapse so that they could be devoted to destruction. Now, when Matthew says that Jesus has gone through Jericho, he's probably referring to the new Jericho because the old one fell down. This new one was a city that that was built just a little bit south. But but the significance of this place still stands, and I think it is so fascinating that here we have another Joshua. Do you know that the name Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua? And by Greek, that comes to us as Jesus, that Jesus and Joshua have the same name. And here we have another Joshua leading a big group of people over the Jordan River into the promised land and and working miracles. And then, of course, we can't think about Jericho without also thinking about another character in that story, the woman Rahab, who was a Gentile prostitute who lived in Jericho at the time of Joshua's conquest, and she helped Joshua and and the Israelite spies to, to conquer that city. She was a means that God used to help them deliver this city into their hands. She turned away from worshiping idols and presumably her sinful lifestyle to a right fear of the Lord. And God delivered her and delivered his people through it. And she goes on to marry into what will become the royal line of David. I wonder if Jesus was thinking about his great, great, many great grandmother as he passed through the city of Jericho. Matthew mentions her in chapter one. She's one of only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And she is part of the reason that Jesus can be born into this royal line, into 
the line of David. So that brings us to our second point, the son of David. Verse 30, it says, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. They're sitting there begging. Of course, in the first century, blindness was incurable. And there weren't really accommodations to allow for blind people to work. So if you were blind, you were reliant on your family to provide for you. And if they couldn't, then you had to beg. And there was a stigma around blindness in the Jewish world. And think of the story in John chapter 9 where Jesus' disciples meet a man who was born blind. And they ask Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It wasn't, Jesus, did he sin? It was, no, whose fault is this? Because clearly somebody did something wrong that this guy is blind. The society saw blind beggars as a nuisance. They had no status. They were looked down on. People kind of assumed that they just weren't good people. In verse 30, these blind men hear that Jesus is passing by, and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. That should stand out to us as something of an unusual title in the gospel according to Matthew. Most of the time when people are talking to Jesus, they call him teacher, rabbi. Sometimes they simply refer to him as Lord, often just as a title of respect, like saying, Sir. Of course, we've seen Jesus refer to himself almost exclusively as the Son of Man. We saw that in the verses preceding this. I also think it's worth mentioning that the demons always call Jesus the Son of God. I think that's interesting. But here these blind men called Jesus something unusual, the Son of David. What does that mean? What is that about? Well, that should call our mind back to, again, the very beginning of the gospel according to Matthew. In chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew says this whole book is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this is one of the major themes that Matthew has been trying to establish from the very beginning, that Jesus is indeed the son of David, meaning that he is descended in that royal line of King David and as such is the rightful ruler of Israel. But Matthew's point is not just that Jesus has the right to be king over Israel because he's David's heir, but that as David's heir, Jesus would be the fulfillment of all of the promises that God had made about the son of David. That is that Jesus would be the fulfillment of all of the prophetic promises about the Messiah. That's what this is about. The long-awaited king who would come in the line of David, who would, as the prophets say, be the one who liberated Israel from all of the Gentile nations who had been conquering them for like the last 600 years. And he would finally come and usher in an era of peace and prosperity and righteousness amongst God's people. And it would be a kingdom that would last for eternity. These are the promises that the Old Testament prophets have been reiterating again and again. That there's one coming in the line of David who would be the hope of the whole world. The book of Isaiah is especially detailed in the promises about this one to come. Isaiah, by the way, is another variation of the name Joshua. Do you know that? That one's for free. You can take that one. 
But Isaiah talks again and again about the root from the stump of Jesse, David's righteous branch, about this Messiah who will reign in wisdom, bringing about this righteous government on his own shoulders, justice within Israel. He would be a mighty ruler, a shepherd of his people, a prince of peace. The Messiah would defeat Israel's enemies, and they would have peace on every side. That's what the Jews were hoping in. That's what the Jews were waiting for. This king who would come, who would redeem and restore and reestablish David's throne and God's people in the promised land. And this is one reason that there's so much interest in Jesus. This is why there are these big crowds following him, because they're wondering, is it him? Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is he really going to bring about this victory? Because he's going to Jerusalem where the Roman governor is, where King Herod is. This is This is what the Messiah would do. But Isaiah had a lot more to say about the Messiah than just that he would be a military conqueror. More than just that he would be a political leader. Isaiah gives us this much more full-orbed, full-bodied picture of who the son of David would be. For every Isaiah 9 or Isaiah 11 that talks about the Messiah being a ruler over the people, well, then we get a passage like Isaiah 42 that Gracie read for us just a moment ago. Isaiah 42, again, God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. So God says the Messiah will be a conquering ruler, yes, and even in Isaiah 42 he speaks to that, but, but at the same time he will also be gentle and lowly. He will be the, the kind of man that wouldn't break a bruised reed or quench a flickering candle. And he would be a king who specifically gives sight to the blind. Do you see that in there? So whether or not most of the Jews in Jesus' day chose to home in on those aspects of Isaiah's prophecy, they just wanted the, the military conqueror. Well, these blind men have paid attention to some of Isaiah's other promises. And it's on that basis that they cry out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. That word mercy, it it can mean something like forgiveness or not getting the punishment that we deserve, but it can also mean show your compassion. Show me your love. These men are saying to Jesus, in effect, son of David, we don't deserve your attention or your care. But we are suffering, and we know that you are able to heal us. So show us your compassion. We could contrast these two men with other characters that we've seen in the last few weeks, like the rich young man, or the two disciples that wanted to sit on either side of Jesus' throne. Those characters did not understand their need before Christ. They didn't understand just how much they needed Christ's mercy on them. But these two blind men do. They come to Jesus like helpless little children, don't they? 
crying out to the Messiah for help. And, and it's interesting that just like with the little children that we saw in chapter 19, again, the crowds try to stop these two men from coming to Jesus. They rebuked them. They said, be silent. Don't you know that Jesus is on a significant journey? He's going to Jerusalem. This might be the king of Israel. He's got to go fight the Romans and judge the wicked. He does not have time for you two sinful beggars. But I love their persistence in verse 31. They cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And what happens next in the story would have been so surprising to the crowds. But by this point in Matthew, we should not be surprised at all to see the Savior's compassion. So that's our third point. The Savior's compassion. And just look at how verse 32 begins. And stopping. Jesus stopped on his significant journey. He wasn't too busy for them. Their needs and concerns were not insignificant to him. If you were at our Lord's Supper service on Wednesday, what did we hear from Psalm 116? That, that God inclines his ear to his saints. That he's listening. God is always stopped and paying attention to what you need, no matter what you have going on. And then what does Jesus say? Verse, two, verse 32, stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And now look very closely at verse 34. It says, and Jesus in pity. You can translate that. Jesus having been moved with compassion. Compassion. In DSC Kids, we, we work through the attributes of God. We have them remember little phrases that talk about the different attributes of God. One of the attributes of God is that he is compassionate. And what do we say, kids? That God being compassionate means that God sees, cares, and acts when his people are in need. That's what our God is like. It's a great definition. And I've talked about this before, but this word here that is to be moved with compassion or pity, it's the Greek word splunknizomai which is far and away my favorite Greek vocab word. <laughs> Mostly because it sounds so funny, but also because of what it means. It's from the word splunkna, which often gets translated as heart. The King James Version translates it as bowels. It's your bowels, it's your guts, it's your inward being. So to be moved with compassion is to be affected at the deepest place of your emotional center in your body. It's not losing control of your emotions. It's not letting sinful emotions overwhelm you. But it is having rightly ordered affections. It's feeling the right way about things and to the degree that you ought to. And that's what's happening to Jesus here. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is having an overwhelming emotional response when he sees these fellow human beings suffering. And that right affection, that compassion, that feeling, it always does what right feelings should and moves us to action, to doing something. 
And every time you see Jesus in the Bible showing compassion or being moved with pity, then watch out because he is about to do or say something amazing. His compassion always leads to action. Look at verse 34. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. Don't miss that either. Look at these little details. We know that Jesus' power is not bound by physical location. We saw him in Matthew chapter 8 heal the centurion's servant over we don't know how many miles away. Jesus doesn't even have to be in the same place as anyone. He is the, the king over the whole earth. Okay? Jesus didn't even have to stop. He could have just kept on walking and seen those guys and like zapped them and then kept on going. But he doesn't. He touches them. He gets near to them. I think that's more just an expression of his compassion because physical touch is so powerful, isn't it? When you're visiting somebody in the hospital and they're laying there in the bed, what do you want to do? You want to hold their hand. Somebody's crying in front of you, you hug them and let them weep on your shoulder. We are embodied physical beings and touch is important. We know that. And so does Jesus. So does your God. Jesus stops. He has compassion. He touches their eyes right at the place where they have the greatest need. In verse 34, immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Immediately. Just like the waves that died down when he commanded them, just like the dead who woke up when he commanded them, just like the demons who were cast out when he commanded them, Jesus has authority. And these men are healed immediately. And then they get up and follow Jesus. That's the story. And on its face, it's very simple, isn't it? But, But it actually has a lot of layers of meaning to it. It would be tempting to see this story and, and just kind of lump it in with all of the other miraculous healings that we have seen through Matthew up to this point. And there are a lot of them. And that wouldn't be wrong. We could consider that the first layer of meaning in this passage. And as we have said about all of those other healings, those miracles that Jesus is, is doing in the Gospels, they're meant to be the pictures of the future brought into the present. They are Christ bringing heaven down into our reality. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be blindness, and there won't be sickness, and there won't be sorrow, and there won't be pain, and there won't be death. That's what's true in the future, and Christ is bringing that into the present with him. So wherever Jesus goes, heaven stuff happens. So these miracles all show us not what we should hope for now, but what we hope for then. And this is doing that same thing. But then there's another level to this, a deeper layer to this, because blindness in the Bible is also a metaphor for our spiritual blindness and our darkness to the truth that we all walk in apart from God's revelation. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this is a condition that we all suffer from, from birth. We are all blind from birth, not physically, but spiritually. 
We are all in darkness without eyes to see the truth. And we all need a compassionate Savior to heal us, to remove our blindness before we can get up and follow him. And that's the greater truth that even Isaiah was pointing to when he prophesied about the Messiah opening the eyes of the blind. This was really most of all, not just about physical blind people, but about the spiritual blindness that, that pervaded all of Israel. That the Messiah was going to come and give sight to his people. That they would turn away from worshiping idols and they would worship the one true God. That's how the Messiah would bring people out of the dungeon out of the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is how he's going to be a light to the nations because he gives sight to the spiritually blind. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're a non-believer, I am so glad that you're here and thank you for being here. And I'm not sure what the circumstances of you being here are, but I want you to know that this is the, what the Bible says about you, that you are spiritually blind. And I don't mean that to be mean. All of us in here, we're at one point spiritually blind. We are all blind beggars. But God opened our eyes. And he can open yours. You just have to realize that you need it. And you have to cry out to this Savior who can give you sight. So can you? Can you see yourself as a blind beggar. Nothing to bring, nothing to offer, entirely in need of your Savior's compassion. Well, if you can, then you can pray the same words that these men prayed. Have mercy on me, son of David, and open my eyes. You can pray that. You could even pray that in your heart right now. And just like Jesus was able to do for these men who are physically blind, he can do that for you spiritually. He can remove the veil that keeps you from understanding and believing the truth. He can make the scales fall off from your eyes, just like he did for me. And I realized that everything that I thought was true about myself and about God and about the world was just completely wrong because I was in darkness. But God shone light into my heart and he can do that for you just like he has done for every other believer in this room and then you can know the truth and the truth will set you free john 8 32 and once you do that once you cry out and once god gives you sight well then you can do what these two men have done what all of us believers have done you can get up and follow jesus for the rest of your life so that's another layer to this story. Isn't it beautiful? But there's more here. Actually, I think this might be the most significant way that we should understand this particular story in Matthew's gospel. It's not just as a demonstration of Christ's heavenly authority. It's not just a metaphor for our spiritual blindness. But I think most of all, this is a public revelation of Christ's messianic identity. If you've got your Bible... Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Beginning in verse 27, we're going to see that there is a very similar story. And I think Matthew is doing this for a reason. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. It says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
You see, it's the same title. The blind guys get it, right? They, they understand what Isaiah was talking about. I think it's interesting. The only other person up to this point in Matthew's gospel to call Jesus the son of David is that Canaanite woman, the non-Jewish woman who needed healing for her daughter. These are the only people that seem to fully grasp Christ's identity this way, crying out that way. Verse 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. So that all sounds very similar to what we're looking at today, right? In fact, some liberal scholars say that Matthew just got confused and included the same story twice because they're so similar. But that misses the difference, and that's right here. Listen now. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. So remember, this was early in Jesus' ministry, and when he was still keeping his messianic identity something of a secret, it wasn't time for him to be publicly revealed yet. Because he knew that as soon as he revealed his identity as the Messiah, he would be crucified. So we see all of these times where Jesus is telling people to be quiet. It's him providentially timing the circumstances of his death. Jesus knew how much time it was going to take to fully train the disciples so that they could carry on without him. And Jesus is even timing his death so that it happens in Jerusalem and so that it happens at the time of the Passover. Jesus is in complete control of this. But that's why he keeps it something of a secret. And then, of course, these guys can't keep the secret. They just run out and tell everybody. But publicly, people are still kind of wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? Well, here in chapter 20, we have a very, very similar story to blind men, son of David, heal us. And he does. And now there is no command to keep quiet. In front of this huge crowd, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus reveals himself publicly. Yes, I am the son of David. I am what Isaiah was talking about. It's me. So is it any wonder that the next story is the triumphal entry? That he's hailed as the king coming into Jerusalem and all of the crowds start shouting together, Hosanna to the son of David. The secret's out. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. But of course, they think Jesus is on his way to be lifted up on his throne. But we know Christ doesn't go to the throne room. But Christ goes to be lifted up on a cross. He enters Jerusalem as a king on a Sunday. And by Friday, five days later, he is arrested, tried, condemned and hung exposed on a cross to die just like he predicted and three days later he would be raised and that is how our true healing occurs that is where Jesus does what he said he came from heaven to do in verse 28 the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
This is the fulfillment of the greatest messianic promise in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That means our sin. Upon him, the Messiah, was the chastisement, was the punishment, was the death that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It was on the cross that Jesus took our sin, our sickness, onto himself. And he gave his life as a ransom payment in our place to secure our release He died as a sacrifice to pay our sins and to secure our resurrection and our bodily restoration. So all of those things that the Jews were looking forward to in the Messiah, they're true in Jesus. But they're true in a deeper and more global and more eternal sense than they could have ever imagined. That he is our redeemer. He is our restorer. He does conquer our enemies and bring about righteousness and justice in God's people. And one day, yes, Jesus will establish a a physical kingdom, an eternal kingdom, where all of the nations on earth will be subject to him. But friends, our greatest enemy is not some world empire. It's the sin that reigns over our own hearts, that blinds us and makes us God's enemies. The wages of sin are death. And Christ died as a ransom first and foremost to take all of that away to serve us that way that's how we are healed by his wounds that's the messiah we have that's the king that this passage is pointing us to that's the king that all of matthew is pointing us to that's the king that all of the bible is pointing us to not a king who takes a throne but a king who takes a cross not one who came to be served but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what our king is like. And that's what his kingdom should be like. So we can say that this is the last layer in this passage. In this beautiful four layer cake of a passage. Because keep all of this in its context. Remember... That this passage is not just leading up to the triumphal entry, but it is the conclusion to what Jesus was just talking about. What true greatness in the kingdom looks like. Jesus says that in the kingdom of heaven, one becomes great by becoming lowly. One becomes first by placing themselves last and by serving others the way that Christ served us. So if you're here and Christ has opened your eyes to see, Christ has caused you to understand your need for him and the salvation that he worked for you on the cross. If you were blind and now you see, get up and follow Jesus. That's what he's inviting you to, to this same kind of life in his kingdom. This story is here for us to behold the glory of our Messiah and to become imitators of him. Oh, that we would have this mind among ourselves that is ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, that we would be more willing to stop for other people, to have compassion towards our fellow human beings, even to get close to them.
that we wouldn't be so consumed by our significant plans, our very important schedules, that we can't see other people around us that have needs. I know that we would have this mind among ourselves. Another translation says that we would have the same attitude as Jesus. That we would be the kind of people that are always saying, what do you want me to do for you? How would that change your marriage if your spouse knew that that was always your attitude? What do you want me to do for you, honey? How would your kids respond to that if they knew that that was how you stood before them with your hands open? What do you want me to do for you? What would that mean for your roommate? What would that mean for the person that you work with? What would that mean for your spiritually blind neighbors? What would that mean for a first-time visitor to our church? That they can tell, not by our words, but by our posture, that we are always standing there. What do you want me to do for you? That's what it means to be a servant. That's, that's how Christ is towards us. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Oh, that we had that attitude. And oh, that we would most of all be consumed with this kingdom work of giving sight to the blind. By that, of course, I don't mean that we go and do the work of giving physical sight to those who are blind. If you believe that you have the miraculous ability to do that, I would love to meet you. But I mean that we are to be the instruments of Christ fulfilling his messianic purposes in the world by making disciples of all nations and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to them. Church, do you see that that is the greatest service that you could ever render to someone else? The most single, most urgent need that anyone has is to know the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for them on the cross. They are in the dark dungeon and you have the lantern. You have the light of Christ that you can proclaim to them, that you can speak to them. And until Jesus returns, he has ordained that we are the sovereign means of him shining that light in the nations, of him proclaiming this gospel. We are the means that God uses to give sight to the blind. And so we should go out like Christ and bring that healing power, the healing power of the gospel. So maybe that just starts with coming a little early to church on the 15th so that you can go with us across the street so that we can meet our neighbors, try to share the gospel with them, or invite them to come, to us with church, come with us to church. Maybe that's how it starts. Maybe you could talk to Pastor Josiah about partnering with our homeless ministry. I was thinking a lot about the beggars in our own city. How can we care for them? They are in prison. They need the gospel. And we have a partnership where we can go and share it with them. Maybe that's where God would want to use you to be about this messianic work in the world. 
Maybe for you, this is finally asking the guy in the cubicle next to you if you can take him to lunch and tell him about the hope that's within you. Reaching out to your neighbor, talking to that woman that's playing with her kids and your kids together at the playground. Or maybe it's like what Pastor Ryan prayed this morning, that you would finally come talk to a pastor and say, I think God might be putting it on my heart to move to another country so I can tell people who have no one to tell them about the gospel of Jesus. Church, when we do that, when we proclaim this amazing truth of the Christ that we have, of the king that we have, God comes along with us by his Holy Spirit, and he uses that testimony to bring sight to the blind. That's what our king does. That's what his kingdom is like. And wherever he is proclaimed, wherever he is, true healing can occur. Because the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. Amen? Let's pray. Yes, God, we thank you for giving sight to us blind beggars. Lord, help us to not forget that we are always in need of you. We are always in need of your healing power. But help us to not also forget that so are many, many other people around us. God, I pray that you would help us to be people that are compassionate, that are quick to help, that are quick to provide care and support, but most of all that are quick to proclaim you, the Messiah, that can free them from their sins. And Lord, through us, through our church, you would give sight to the spiritually blind. All for your glory. Until that day you come again. Amen.